This week, we have an extra special guest as we talk to Apollo legend Fred Hayes, the lunar module pilot for Apollo 13. But we think that Apollo 13 has been covered enough elsewhere, so we're using our time with Fred to discuss some of the other moments in his career. Have you ever met Fred Hayes? If so, we'd love to hear your stories. We're at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. There's also a contact form on our website, which is spaceandthingspodcast.com. And please check out our Patreon page as well. That's patreon.com forward slash spaceandthings. But right now, please enjoy episode 47 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 47. So, we've got so much to get through today. A ridiculous amount. Obviously, as we said in the intro, Fred Hayes. Fred Hayes. Yes, the Fred Hayes. Excuse me while I just freak out a little bit that it happened. Anyway, also, today we had Wally Funk's flight as we're recording this on Tuesday the 20th, uh, which was incredible. Yes. How did you feel about that, Emily? So I'll be real. I was crying for a while. Uh, it was just beautiful to see it. Uh, it was just joy, pure joy for me. It was it, uh, just to see uh, somebody finally get their chance after, you know, 60, 60 years. I mean, it, it's just amazing, man. And she's so, you know, spry and active, you know, and stuff like that. And it was just a joy to see. And I really think I, I know some people will probably disagree, but I really think that this really opens up, you know, sort of new possibilities for all sorts of people going into space, not just these youngins and stuff. Although <laughs> Wally is in really good shape. I do have to mention, you know, but I know she's 82, but she's not the kind of 82 I'll probably be if I make it. That, to that <laughs> yeah, age. I know so, the feeling. I know the feeling. If I make it that long. Yeah. So we'll talk more about Wally later, but uh, I, I do want to ask you, Emily, how was Space Fest? Oh my God. Um, I am, uh, you guys can't see my face here, but I, I'm yawning. I'm totally exhausted, but I'm completely triumphant. It was a wonderful time. It was just wonderful to see my friends after all this time. It's been a couple of years. I did do a shuttle panel and a talk and they both went uh, flawlessly, which I was very happy about the shuttle panel. Uh, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I thought it went amazing. And, and there's more to come next week. I'm going to Oshkosh and I'm going to be doing another shuttle panel there. Yeah. So. Should be awesome. Yeah, that looks that looks super cool. What was, what was your favorite panel that you went to, other than your own? Obviously, uh, I saw some some pretty cool ones that were happening. So, so what what did did you learn anything? I'm very embarrassed to admit this. I, I did not go to the Apollo panel or the Mission Control panel, and I really meant to this year, but I was being pulled in every direction, so I did not make it to those. Unfortunately, uh, I did attend a, a really. There was a wonderful talk by. Uh, uh, Mike Mullane and his son Patrick. Amazing. And it was hysteric. It was alternately like hysterical and touching at the same time. As you would expect, I think, from them. Yeah. You got the perspective of, you know, the father being an astronaut, and then you got the perspective of, you know, the son kind of watching all of that happen and, you know, with all the triumph and the scary parts as well. And it was just that was probably uh my favorite talk and 
uh, Chuck Dieterich, I also saw his talk, and he did an incredible talk about Enterprise. Oh, nice. The, the shuttle landings, uh, which we're going to talk about some today. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Uh, so, yeah, I really hope we can get out there next year. And it, uh, I've been watching all the photos go up on Space Hipsters, and uh, it looked like everyone had a great time. So, uh, yeah, Space Fest, do it next year. Whenever the dates get announced, book your tickets. Go. I know I will be trying to. Yes, and uh, we we did miss you there. Plenty of people asked, you know, you guys need to do a live show next year. And I'm like, absolutely. Oh, my God, that would I, be amazing, wouldn't it? I was definitely planning. I'm definitely planning that. So, yeah, it would be awesome. Sweet, sweet. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Okay, we're off to a good start. Play it cool. So back on July 3rd, Dave and I had the opportunity to talk to the legendary Fred Hayes, who most people know as the Lunar Module pilot from Apollo 13. Born in Mississippi in 1933, Fred was selected in a fifth group of astronauts in April 1966 and was in the backup crew for both the Apollo 8 and 11 missions. He wasn't originally on the Apollo 8 backup crew, but Michael Collins needed surgery, so Fred got called up. So he was right in the thick of the action for what are arguably the two most important flights of the space program. He was then the first of his group to get a flight assignment when he was selected for the, for Apollo 13 alongside his classmate, Ken Mattingly. Although, as this is well documented, Mattingly was replaced by another Group 5 astronaut, Jack Swigert, after being exposed to measles just a few days before the launch. Now, I'm going to assume that everyone knows about Apollo 13, but after that, Fred was named backup commander to Apollo 16 and he was set to command Apollo 19 before budget cuts, which would have made him the first of the Group 5 astronauts to command a mission, an accolade that would later go to mutineer Jerry Carr for the final Skylab mission. <laughs> Mutineers, all right. Yeah, I thought I'd try and sneak a little joke in there, Emily. Yep. Fred was then assigned to the shuttle program and in 1977 commanded the Space Shuttle Enterprise on three separate approach and landing test flights alongside Gordon Fullerton. These missions took off in the back of a modified Boeing 747 and the crew had to glide the shuttle down to land at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, the Enterprise was a prototype shuttle that never flew in space, but these test flights were essential and had they have failed, the space shuttle likely would have never flown. Uh, he also was assigned to command the second shuttle flight, which was originally supposed to have carried the teleoperator retrieval system, which would have put Skylab into a higher orbit, thus extending its life. However, due to delays to the shuttle program, this mission was cancelled and Fred left NASA in June 1979 and went to join Grumman Aerospace Corporation. Now, Fred's going to talk a little bit about this part of his life, but he retired, and it was a well-deserved retirement, in 1996. So now you know a little bit more about him and the approach and landing tests on the Shuttle Enterprise. Let's play the interview. Stand by one. Yeah, I got him with the uh, Kevin reprint valve in there, Jack. Every time he does that, our heart's jump in our mouth. Welcome, Fred Hayes. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are absolutely honoured that you've agreed to talk to us. And we want to focus on some things which aren't Apollo 13, if that's all right. So I'll start right at the beginning. You were born in Mississippi. Uh, and when you were growing up, was a career in flying something you ever considered or thought about? Uh, no, no. I was uh, uh, growing up, uh, obviously, I was on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I did a lot of stuff in the water, fishing. 
swimming at a lot growing up. And uh, my first interest in the profession uh, was in journalism. Wow. Uh, I worked on the high school newspaper, uh, sports editor. I worked after school. I had an afternoon paper route, so I could not go out for high school sports. So this was the next best thing. I was sports editor for the newspaper. And uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, summers, I worked for the local uh, newspaper, uh, covering some uh, events like conventions. Uh, and uh, the fellow who was uh, city editor even let me one summer. I ran, uh, covered the city hall and uh, uh, the courts and the police, that kind of thing. And I went on to junior college, which is now all of them are called community colleges in the United States. But uh, for two years, and I still was interested in journalism. I was sports editor there one year and then became editor of the junior college newspaper, which was the Bulldog Barks. <laughs> and uh, from there, I planned to actually to go uh, to school in Missouri. I was going to go to the University of Missouri, which was a renowned school for journalism in that day and maybe still is. And I had that plan, but the Korean War kind of uh, started me in a different direction. Wow. That's, I mean, it's a very different direction, isn't it? Yes. No, I, no, I, I went in to become an officer and the only program, uh, at my age with two years of college, I could get into to achieve a commission was the Naval Aviation Cadet Program. So that steered me into uh, flying. I'd never been in an airplane before in my life. Wow. And how old were you at that point? I was 18 years old. Wow. Yeah, that's a real career change. Anyway, I loved it. Obviously, I love flying and decided that now, not knowing quite where that was going to lead me, I uh, said, that's that's my new career. It's uh, somehow in aviation. So by my calculations, you were then 32 when you were selected to be an astronaut. And in the intervening years, you were obviously in the military, as you said, and you're a test pilot as well. So what do you consider to be the highlight of your achievements in those years? In those years, well, at, at uh, Lewis Research Center, uh, where I started with NASA, uh, just barely after they became NASA, because when I was actually hunting employment as a test pilot for NASA, they had not become NASA yet. The space <laughs> program had not arrived. They were, in a, they were in NACA in aircraft uh, testing at the various centers. And uh, we, had, we had there, Jack Enders and I, uh, started a zero-G program with a Navy uh, bomber, uh, AJ-2 aircraft, which had a sizable bomb bay we could use to free float uh, experiments. Uh, and we were the second zero-G program in the country. Uh, the, the Air Force had one that started initially at White Sands and then moved to uh, Wright-Patterson. But they were testing human subjects. They were already on that tangent. We were testing fluid systems, like for the Centaur rocket, uh, the fluid tanks, uh, the SNAP-8 nuclear power generator that flew uh, for satellites. Although we didn't have the nuclear core in the payload bay, uh, <laughs> we were testing the cooling system uh, using a uh, carbon heater to generate the heat as if it was the RTG. And so we've done those kind of things uh, with our Zero-G program. The most fun time of my life, actually, though, was at Edwards Air Force Base mm. at NASA's Flight Research Center, where I transferred to after three and a half years at Lewis. I basically uh, was just about that cycle, three three years, behind Neil, Neil Armstrong. Neil started at Lewis, 
And Neil went to uh, NASA's Flight Research Center at Edwards. And of course, he got to fly the X-15, which I did not. And then went into the astronaut program, mainly because the variety of flying, that flying different kinds of aircraft. I was normally involved either directly in the research program or supporting other uh, test programs, about three of them at the same time. And sometimes uh, one month I flew nine different types of aircraft. Wow. Wow. It was just uh, every day, almost flying every day. And uh, it was a very enjoyable, uh, fun time. All right. We're going to fast forward a little bit. You were there during the development of the space shuttle in its early years. And this year is uh, obviously the 40th anniversary of the first shuttle launch. But you were there before, you know, it launched when they were actually trying to put it together. Uh, what kinds of things as a pilot did you want for the space shuttle, like such as, you know, a heads up display or something like that? Well, uh, I actually, I got involved with shuttle right after I got off of the training for Apollo 16. Uh, I was interested in program management and I talked to uh, Chris, Chris Craft and Deke, Deke Slayton and uh, managed to uh, get a slot to go to Harvard Business School to the program for management development for about four months and came back and went to work in the Orbiter Project Office. But almost immediately after getting off 16, I, I uh, got involved in the proposal evaluations for the com companies, four of them, that uh, sent in proposals to NASA to build the shuttle. So I was uh, part of a team, a fairly large team, over 100 people that evaluated those proposals to eventually pick Rockwell as the uh, company to build shuttle. But after, after I came back from Harvard, I went into the Orbiter Project Office. And I worked for four years in program management for the uh, through the design development of shuttle. And at that time, that's when I got assigned as one of the two crews to go fly Enterprise. Now, as far as the discussion on what uh, was improved, uh, the things like the HUD, the heads up display, actually came about through the approach and landing test, as well as Pappy, uh, they call them Pappy lights that helped define the uh, pathway, uh, the glide path to the runway. Uh, because of the last flight I flew in shuttle, where I had a PIO, pilot-induced oscillation, trying to land on the runway that was on a, on a line, a line that was painted across the runway. And I got too energetic with the pitch control and actually uh, rate limited the hydraulics. And when I touched down, I bounced and I had a roll in. So I was rolling to the right, the, one, the wing rolling off, off. And I could not get, I had no roll control because the pitch axis had been saturated. So I went through a couple of cycles of that because uh, it finally did give me roll control on the third input and it was too much. And uh, so anyway, Gordo corrected me to get off the stick for a little bit and let it damp out and we landed but the hardest landing of the program, in fact, probably the hardest one ever made in the whole shuttle program. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, that was that 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 the result of that evaluation is what uh, uh, Hank Hartsfield led it uh, pretty much and got the HUD, the heads up display for the uh, orbiters uh, subsequently. And the, as I said, the Pappy lights to help uh, pilots uh, plan, find the right glide path on the way to land. So you flew uh three of the five approach and landing tests with Gordon Fullerton. At the time, did you have any concerns about being launched from the back of a plane? No, actually, we, the, as far as the uh, 
pathway we're going to follow uh, on each of the three attach points we had load cells things that could measure forces in all three axes and we had actually flown three captive flights where we did not separate mm -hmm. and we collected that data to uh, develop a, a pathway that Fitzfulton would fly with the 747 to get to the point of he would call launch ready and uh, we knew uh, from the speed we we're at and the conditions uh, altitude that the load cell data we had collected indicated the vector sum of the forces would project us straight up. Uh, the only concern was uh, what would happen after we separated, because the first time we would get to see uh, in Ops 2 how the flight control, the primary flight control was going to uh, be, uh, whether it was going to end up maybe with some wild rate limiting, because we highly gained it. We wanted it to be a, a uh, good flight control in terms of uh, pilot evaluation to a pilot rating of one or two. And so it was highly gained and possibly could go unstable if the aerodynamics uh, criteria and stuff that went into that design were wrong. And that was my main concern was how it would act uh, right after we separated because that's the first time we would get to see how it flew. Of course, it flew well, in fact, better than we had seen in any simulations. Uh, so that was a that was a happy happy moment. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I'm geeking out a little because I I've watched all the approach and landing movies and I love that stuff. I think it's so cool. So I apologize if I'm smiling too much. <laughs> so, <laughs> what were your thoughts during the first uh, active? I think it was the first active flight when you guys were actually flying. Uh, when you guys lost a GPC or a general purpose uh, computer, the moment Enterprise separated. Yeah, that uh, that was one of those gotcha things because uh, <laughs> it makes a big red X on the CRT and there's a little array of lights that uh, indicated that uh, the other three computers had voted uh, against this one computer. So that it was bad. Uh, that was Gordo's job. Gordo had to safe uh, that computer pulling circuit breakers and pulling all the uh, sensors that fed that computer, mainly to guard against it, polluting uh, the other computers, make sure it was dead in other words. Mm -hmm. And so that took up some time for Gordo and they had to go actually behind him and to his right to get to some of these uh, circuit breakers. So he missed a few minutes of the few minutes at the first of the flight uh, with his head in the cockpit doing that kind of thing. That was probably the one of the most difficult uh, things uh, that w was applicable to orbital flight was to get the four computer set, get the software worked uh, for that uh, uh, condition, which would never never been done before, except in one helicopter program in Canada we looked at, which didn't have a was not very successful, <laughs> and we had great difficulty through the whole uh, testing on the ground. Uh, with Enterprise to finally get a software uh, load from IBM that actually could, we could keep the computers working together. Uh, we were at a point uh, late uh, getting ready to go move it to Edwards where we, we almost said, well, we'll give up. We'll give up on the four computer set and go fly single string. But uh, finally they came up to give us B21 or B23, uh, the software load that uh, it worked. It was solid as a rock. Uh, both in ground tests and up to that separation. 
That turned out to be another thing like Apollo 14 with the Sarda ball and the abort switch. And that almost caused them to lose the landing. I'm not sure if it was a Sarda ball or something anyway, came, had come loose in that computer and the internal shark. That's, that's later in the investigation. They found that was the problem for that one computer. Those flights to me, they were the apex of test piling as, or piloting, I'm sorry, as Enterprise had so many systems that were relatively new in 1977, uh, such as uh, digital fly-by-wire. So um, very kind of a general question. Uh, what kinds of things did you learn from those flights? You probably answered a little bit of, of this, but, you know, sort of general things you learned. Right. No, I, the, incidentally, that, that fly-by-wire, <clears throat> that took some getting used to uh, the, in the astronaut office when it was decided to go to this data bus system, which fly by wire, uh, that we were not going to have cables and pulleys and uh, uh, direct uh, direct linkage to our flight controls or even gimbal in the rocket engine, it's a, uh, which we always had had in airplanes. So this was kind of a big first step uh, to, to get used to in your mind that we were going to just move the stick and it was moving a potentiometer that was going to a computer that would do something. Of course, you got that's the yeah. problem you got in your car today. I mean, same that kind of system. Mm. But at any rate, uh, we we uh, we learned a lot of things. First of all, we verified the uh, basic aerodynamics from the wind tunnel. Uh, that uh, some some the static uh, derivatives uh, you can get pretty well lift and drag, longitudinal stability, but the dynamic uh, parameters of uh, how well the uh, elevons would work, the rudder, etc. The, the dynamic uh, motion uh, derivatives you normally uh, can only get by flying and also ground effect. It's a phenomenon any airplane has as it gets near the ground, generally about within one wing width, uh, where you either get a potentially a cushioning effect or what we call vacuum sweep, where it would tend to suck you into the ground and maybe have a harder landing than you wanted. The Concorde had a little bit of that problem, I think. The pilot said a little overcompensated as they were fixing the land to do a little pitch up to make it a softer landing on the Concorde aircraft. Uh, so we uh, we obviously verified that and it turned out shuttle was about perfect. If you were set up right, you could almost let go of the stick and it would set, set itself on the ground nicely. Uh, we did So we did a number of maneuvers on these flights and they were very short flights. The longest one, I think, was the first one at five minutes and 21 seconds. Gardo quipped at our post-flight uh, that day at something to the effect that he commented, this is certainly not <laughs> a program to build up your flight time. So we did man manual maneuvers as well as we had a way in the, <clears throat> in the computer by uh, pressing one button. It would cycle the controls a certain way to, to again, create that dynamics that also they needed in the evaluation. <clears throat> we proved out, uh, obviously, the wheels, uh, tires, brakes, uh, nose wheels, steering. In an airplane, normal airplane with a power plant, with an engine, you normally do that down the runway. You know, you'll taxi, uh, you'll go to the runway, you'll go down the runway at speeds and test the braking in and test the nose wheels without lifting off. Uh, until you're finally confident all that works. And oh then you'll, one day you'll lift off. Well, of course, we couldn't do that. So <laughs> we kind of did it backwards. Uh, we decided we'd land 
and would delay in the early flights till we got slower to start testing that stuff. And then slowly backed our way up to the higher end, higher end of the speed range as we got through the end of the flights. So that was kind of a uh, something to uh, to new that we had to also uh, verify on the flights. Uh, it seems like on many of these uh, programs and flights, even when you're ready to fly, things keep coming up out of the woodwork. I know on Apollo 11, that was the backup crew uh, on that one with Buzz for Buzz, and a guy came out late in the game uh, with the worry about. Uh, well, two things. One, it would sink into the dust uh, and disappear. But the second one was uh, when you when you came back, the crew came back in and bring in all this fine dust and possibly in 100% oxygen, it might even catch fire. So there was that bugaboo that came up. Uh, <laughs> in our case, they had uh, McDonald had done a study and looked at the uh, rudder attachments to the shuttle and worried that when we put the speed brakes out and at certain speeds, it could create flutter and tear off the tail. So we uh, ended up using the captive flights where you could safely do that and went through uh, profiles of uh, speed brake deployment. Uh, when I say speed brakes, that was actually the rudder split, split open, and that would gave you the drag. And uh, so that was done actually more extensively by uh, Joe Engel and Dick Truly on the second captive flight, where they took it up to a sort of max speed. And at five degrees, uh, slowly, incrementally opened uh, the speed brakes to see if the tail would fall off. <laughs> and of course, it didn't. Uh, so the, the, anyway, those are the, the kind of things that uh, that we, we did. Uh, it obviously, uh, it's, uh, Verified the lift to drag of the vehicle. Uh, that and I said that, and otherwise general handling qualities that the flight control worked well. Uh, as I said worked better than we uh, had seen in any engineering simulations or the shuttle train aircraft. Talking of controlling the shuttle, we've had a question from Chris, one of our patreons. He says, "Could you alien roll a shuttle and live? Uh, did you ever try this in a simulator?" Or, and I like this, this is a lot of fun. Did you ever try anything in the simulator that wasn't approved? Uh, any maneuvers that perhaps you wouldn't have got away with in real life that you just thought, do you know what? We'll try that in the sim. Okay. No, no, I did not. <laughs> uh, but I can, I can tell you that. I mean, if you had the speed uh, and uh, you could afford, you had the altitude, uh, there's no reason why you couldn't roll a shuttle. Wow. Uh, you know, through one one roll, uh, I don't think that that would hurt anything. <laughs> nice. Of course, you're a glider. You know, even yep. ones coming orbit, uh, and also depend on where you did. I mean, you, if you did it, I'm talking about if you did it subsonic. I don't think you'd want to be doing it higher up, obviously, <laughs> or or even at Mach eight <laughs> before you got subsonic. Uh, so, but no, I think uh, subsonically, where basically it's an airplane. Uh, you could roll it. That would have been something to see. That would have been kind of kind of cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Speed brakes closed. Ah, dang it, Dardo. Oh, well. We're stopped. We got runway left. Yeah, that's what Milk said. You start working too hard on it. Yeah. Dang it. Just trying to push it on. That was it. We're fast. When you did that first approach and landing test, and 
you didn't know it was going to work as well as it actually did. Did you have redundancy in terms of, were you wearing parachutes or was there ejection seats in there? Was any of that considered? Yeah, we had we had a couple of plan, plan Bs and Plan C, if you will. <laughs> uh, we had a backup system uh, on one the fifth computer. Right. On one computer, it was actually a much simpler control system, just a simple rate command system. It was also coded by a different software vendor, by Draper Labs, to make sure there was no generic software errors. So we also went through an, uh, over 400 runs in a simulator at Ames Research Center using all, all the four of us that were going to fly Enterprise, plus uh, Bob Crippen, uh, John Young, uh, Ken Manningly flew some. Uh, Deaky Deaky even came in one day and flew some <laughs> runs. Wow. To essence, to uh, what I call de-gain de- the system. We, we deliberately uh, pick, picked a uh, system that would give us a pilot rating of about four. I don't know if you're familiar with the Cooper Hopper pilot rating system that pilots use to judge how well something flies and performs. Uh, but not one would be perfect. Uh, 10 would be unflyable. <laughs> and uh, so the primary system we wanted at one or two. So we deliberately degain this backup to be at about four. So it was kind of sloppy, if you will, and, and I can use that term but we knew we could get it on the ground. Uh, so all it took to get there was one button on top of the stick you pushed and that would kill, wouldn't kill, but it would cut off the input outputs on four computers and switch you to the fifth. So all at once would be on that backup system. So that was the first step you would do if it would sort of went out of control at separation. Uh, of course, this plan C was, as you mentioned, we were sitting in ejection seats. In fact, the biggest uh, physical uh, concern uh, was uh, for the uh, 747 crew. Right. <clears throat> we, we had means of escape and, like I said, backups. Uh, they did not. They had a tunnel they supposedly could get to uh, and bail out, but if it would have really would have seriously, seriously hit and damaged the 747, uh, they may have not survived. Yes, that's pretty crazy. And this has just got me thinking. Obviously, you flew on 13, and then you were commander for 16. So you had no qualms about getting in again, despite the fact you had troubles on 13. I, I know that you had a, a pretty nasty plane crash at one point in, in the early 70s as well, and you had no issue with flying again. Is it just part of the test pilot psyche to not get nervous when you then get back on the on the train, so to speak? Or was there some nerves after those missions when you started training for the next missions or when you started getting into a plane again? Well, I, I think, you know, on any on any uh, testing operation, there are certain, obviously, risks. But the, the thing that makes you uh, confident, and that's uh, the, the general public uh, has a problem in understanding uh, they, they are, some people kind of think uh, that you sit around playing uh, AC Ducey or cards and one day they call you and say it's time to go fly the airplane. Uh, they don't realize that you're a part of the whole uh, creation of the uh, design development or even in the case of a small test program. You're very, you spend a lot of time developing the test program, looking at the what ifs uh, can, for contingencies, what will, what will you do if something this doesn't happen or this goes wrong? 
So it's through that uh, assessment and involvement with the, the new airplane or new spacecraft or the uh, project, uh, just test program, that you're confident you've kind of looked at things and you, you've thought of all the contingencies and, uh, and, and have some, again, plan B at least, uh, to deal with those things. So that gives you the confidence uh, that, you know, your, your, your apprehension is more that you'll screw up and won't uh, be able to follow correctly the flight plan or the test plan, and you won't get the data that they wanted. Uh, so that's, if you have concerns, my, my concern was always that, uh, uh, follow up and executing what uh, we'd plan to do. We're getting near sort of the end of your uh, NASA career. Uh, you were training for STS-2A, which was the Skylab uh, reboost mission. And then after uh, that got canceled, you left NASA for Northrop Grumman in 1979. Let's just do kind of an alternate history. And let's just say, hypothetically, you decided to stay at NASA uh, and Skylab was still magically in orbit somehow. Uh, what kinds of shuttle missions would you have uh, liked to have flown? Well, uh, that that was a very exciting mission. It would have been the first rendezvous, <clears throat> first time to carry a propulsion system, a little bitty uh, kick stage in a payload bay. <clears throat> Jack Jack Lausma was actually training to uh, to fly that vehicle over to dock it with Skylab. Uh, we had there was a simulator at Martin in Colorado, where Jack spent quite a bit of time. I I went up and flew it a couple of times, but my, mainly it was Jack's. Uh, responsibility. So he spent a lot of time in that simulator learning to fly that little kick stage. And they could also vary the uh, conditions of the Skylab to make it not tumbling, but where it wasn't quite whole and steady and could be in some roll motion. And Jack was even practicing how to dock it if, if it was in that uh, condition. Uh, but uh, the other missions that I thought, thought would be interesting, obviously, were any that involved rendezvous. Uh, and done many, of course, uh, to go to the space station. And you'd have a brief respite out of the orbiter to roam around again in the ISS uh, before you came back home, but you wouldn't have to stay uh, six months <laughs> <laughs> like, like some do. So anyway, th those kind of missions would have been uh, pretty exciting. When you were at Norfolk Grumman, what kind of work were you doing there? Uh, well, I had sort of a uh, half, half and half career. The first uh, four years, I ran space programs. So I had manufacturing. I, I had responsibility of manufacturing two of the wing sets for the latest shuttles. Wow. So Grumman, Grumman built the wings for the space shuttle. And I uh, did an interesting study for, for uh, uh, the, the sa a satellite system, uh, that solar power satellite. That would uh, you theoretically would put up an array about the size of Manhattan. That would be solar cells and the parked and geosynchronous and uh, transmit by the microwave or infrared, uh, the energy to uh, offshore stations and then to bring the power to shore. And it looked like feasible because it was about, about the same time that it was evolving the uh, Star Wars program under uh, President Reagan. And uh, General Abramson, in fact, was head of that program at the time. And they were going to build a big, dumb booster that was going to get these battle stations up in orbit. And it looked like the fallout of that big, dumb booster might be appropriate to get uh, the material up to build this solar power satellite. 
there was a study uh, we did with with Boeing uh, it together. So I did those kind of things. But then I went off uh, and actually uh, formed a service company. Grumman had never had a service company. Uh, Grumman was a totally uh, non-union company. And uh, one of the things you get into with service companies is unions. And so we created a subsidiary company that kind of offset from the primary uh, bigger company. And the first large contract I won with Lockheed and Thiokol was to turn around shuttles, shuttle processing contract. So for 12 years, I was involved with that activity at Kennedy Space Center with that contract. And uh, I actually did an internal to our program accident investigation after Challenger. Uh, we, we were, frankly, uh, Lockheed wanted, us, wanted me to look at it with a safety advisory board I already had established to look at our processing, see if there was any problems that we had. And we used it as the accident board internally. And they, they of course, were worried about company liability mm. and you know what had caused this uh, mishap. It's tragedy, tragedy. And as it turned out, it was uh, not not in the, in the processing itself, as it turned out, as you know. So it's a wide variety, uh, interesting uh, business in many, many ways that what, way. Were you just in management or were you still flying at that point as well? No, I was not flying. No, I, I uh, only flying I did uh, when I had the first four years at Grumman. We had a fleet of airplanes, uh, a couple of Gulf Streams. Uh, we had uh, two beach barons, one out at Calverton near the out at the end of Long Island where all the jet manufacturing was done, and one at Bethpage. I used that to go to uh, meetings I had where I carry engineers. We had meetings, uh, a lot of them in Washington uh, with at the Pentagon with contracts we had, and also a lot of lobbying. I mean, I'd go down and uh, for certain contracts and uh, we had and for Grumman to try to uh, visit congressmen or the staffers and try to assure the, the next budget cycle was going to include the support needed mm. uh, to, you know, for that program, that particular program. Mm. Well, you retired from Grumman in 1996. And uh, it, I was thinking earlier, obviously we're recording this the day after Wally Funk has been announced that she's going to space. And by the time this airs, hopefully that would have happened at the tender age of 82. And it's got me wondering, would you go back if someone offered you a flight, Freddo? No, I would not. I'm, I'm, I'm not as good a shape as she is. (laughs) (laughs) I have a neuropathy, uh, high blood pressure, which I control. And, uh, no, I don't, I don't, uh, feel as uh, capable as she must feel right now. She looks, pictures I've seen, she looks in uh, great shape. Yeah, she really does. She really does. So it's possible. And I remember John Glenn was in his late 70s, I guess, when uh, John flew again. Yeah. Uh, so the, act, the actual problem with uh, would be flying again, if you're going to be a useful, uh, I'm talking about now in ISS, uh, where you're going to have to play a role uh, with experiments, or in the case of shuttle, uh, you have to be an active crew member. Uh, the hardship is the training, mm. not the flight. Uh, the, the flight it wouldn't wouldn't be that tough, but the hours you spent, uh, people spend training would be arduous and uh, really tough when you a senior citizen. Yeah, I imagine so. And and you you're enjoying your retirement, I'm sure. 
I, I am I'm uh, involved with uh, several museums, but the one mostly is Infinity Science Center in Mississippi, which I've been with from the start and actually helped raise the money to uh, build it. Uh, so we started from scratch with that facility and it's uh, back in business. Unfortunately, this uh, COVID virus, as you know, shut down a lot of things business-wise and also museums were hurt badly uh, with a lack of attendance. But we're uh, back up operating now. And uh, I have uh, written a book, incidentally, which uh, uh, were contracted uh, Bill Moore and I with the Smithsonian the Press. And it's a forecast to hopefully to be out on the street about the Apollo 13 anniversary uh, next next year. The, uh, the title of the book is Never Panic Early. It's a great title. That's a fantastic title. Yeah, I love that. I, I think um, the cover, the the proposed cover image just came out and I was like, wow, that's awesome. I can't yeah. wait for that. Yeah, it tells a lot of it doesn't just Apollo 13 is just one chapter. Wow. Uh, there's so much been so much been written about Apollo 13, uh, and I tried to focus on things in a way that had not that, that I was aware of that had been written or talked about very much. So it kind of fills in some of called some of the blanks, uh, and uh, but it covers these some of these other things like that accident board for Challenger. Uh, the, the uh, space station freedom was, I didn't mention that. I had four years uh, on the, I ran a contract for Grumman that we won to do the uh, system engineering and integration on the space station, the space station freedom, the one we started with that was critically underfunded. And I faced lots of management changes at NASA. It was kind of not unheard of compared to previous programs in either Apollo or shuttle. Three administrators, three different heads at Washington, three different heads at Reston. It's hard to keep up with the NASA changes mm. and uh, that we were serving. We were the contractor, support contractor. So that chapter, I, if it sticks, uh, I label it my time in purgatory. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, it was a, it really was a big problem through Congress to keep the money. Mm -hmm. uh, adequately uh, funded in, that, or in those those days. Uh, one year, it was a year after I left the, that program, actually, and went back to the uh, company I'd started. Uh, one vote, If one vote had changed in the House of Representatives, you would have no space station today. Wow. Mm -hmm. One vote, just one vote. one vote. So I spent a lot of time being the morale officer to uh, <laughs> try to hold on to my workforce. Uh, because <laughs> they they weren't sure the program was going to survive. Yeah. yeah. Um. So so we have one other question from one of our one of our supporters, David Brown, and uh, and and this is a nice nice little bit of fun. He says, uh, "How do you manage to be everywhere at the same time when you're at Space Fest?" Because he says that when you walk by Starbucks, you're holding court. And when you go through the hotel lobby, you seem to be talking to another NASA person and you turn a corner in the big gallery in the vendor's area and there you are. He said, it said, uh -huh. he said, Fredo may not have landed on the moon, but he seems to have perfected the art of teleportation. Uh <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry this year uh, because of my problems at home here. I'm not going to make Space Fest. I really uh, hate that. <clears throat> it's a kind of an event. Uh, that uh, every everyone there uh, loves space. Uh, 
I mean, it just you feel right at home uh, with anybody you see or meet or talk to. Uh, I also uh, take time on I pick out a certain certain speakers uh, that I actually uh, uh, take aside and go to those events because the particularly the ones uh, like JPL uh, has uh, speakers that talk about uh, their projects, which other than the media, I you know I never get much about. Mm. Uh, and what I see on again on Facebook or, or general media. So this uh, it has an advantage uh, that way. It's just continually over the years, I've met uh, people I consider uh, good friends uh, that I you know, like to uh, see and mix with. And I'll miss miss that this year. That's uh, it's talking about the Starbucks. We normally had a breakfast club at <laughs> Starbucks every year. Uh, but you know, other than that, uh, luncheons I mix with people, that kind of thing. So it's a it's a great event. It really is, just from from that aspect. Yeah, I, ho- I hope to go. I haven't been yet, but I hope to be able to get across next year uh, to try and make that. Um, but th- thanks so much for joining us, Fred. This has been really wonderful. Thank you for your thoughts yes, and, uh, and, you. and digging into some of these stories with us. Uh, it really means a lot. Well, I hope this, uh, you know, the stories will continue. Uh, and it takes that, uh, as you know, in the U.S., uh, None, none of this is going to happen without uh, somehow uh, working through administration and congressional support uh, to continue the funding. So the the ways and best ways we can advertise, if you will, a market uh, to make sure that happens. So uh, exploration and space will continue as uh, needed. Mm. And I, I try to do what I'm not, not probably not quite as active as Buzz is about Mars, but uh, Otherwise, I try to do what I can to keep the story out there uh, to the world at large, and uh, and also through the museum. I I, I thought I saw a benefit there in, in most museums of uh, sort of educating children, so those that at least have the right aptitude uh, might end up in a, a you know a technology degree, which is going to be essential. Well, not just for space, but medicine. Uh, uh, some of the challenges we have that people worry about global warming, et cetera. Technology is a part of uh, uh, supporting, helping, uh, uh, finding answers for those kinds of things. Uh, so it's important to have the younger people coming along too. Absolutely. And it's a wonderful museum. Emily, have you ever been to the Infinity Science Center? I'm embarrassed to say I have not yet, but I did uh, help with the uh, one of the fundraisers. I bought one of your bobbleheads recently. Yeah, me so too. I, All right, so, terrific. Yes, so I did help <laughs> with the fundraiser. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really is a wonderful mu- museum, Emily. You've got I got there in 2019, and and the, the the people that work there are just wonderful as well. They were so helpful to me, uh, and uh, and it was a wonderful place. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have to head over there. Absolutely. All right. So uh, thanks very much, Fredo. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad glad to talk to you and uh, keep things uh, under control in England there, will you? I'll do my best. I'll do my okay. best. <laughs> Houston is go for Seth. Have a great flight. Take one, Seth. There's two clear. Hey, we got a GPC light. Lost the sink on two. Pushing over. And a big X on computer number two. Roger, stand by and halt on GPC number two.
Well, how about that, Emily? Yeah, I'm walking on air right now. That was an that was <laughs> incredible. Um, he's really such a nice guy. I mean, he really is. He's he's uh th- there are a lot of friendly astronauts, but he's definitely one of the friendliest. Um, I think him and Jack Lausma, which he talked who he talked about a little bit during this, um, are really like the most like just friendly astronauts ever. Like you know, very just approachable. No. You're not like, oh, my God, I'm scared of talking to this guy. You know, very like just just cool. But yeah, I'm a little dazed right now. That was really awesome. Uh, I'm going to admit to my complete nerdy nerdery here. I've watched all the approach and landing test films. I probably don't understand it as well as somebody like, say, Dennis Jenkins, who's like the space shuttle guru. But um, yeah, that that's one of my favorite programs. And nobody talks about it because it wasn't. Nine. Because it was, you know, they weren't launching into space on the boosters and the, you know, they weren't on the stack, you know, but I honestly, and Fredo is so humble. He probably would not agree with this, but I consider Fred Hayes the first shuttle commander because he was the first person to step inside a shuttle. And I'll be real. I think the approach and landing tests were pretty risky. I mean, they had to work, you know? That's why why I asked about the plan B's because... It dawned on me that they they had no idea, did they? They had no idea. I mean, it's, and it blew my mind that even the seven four seven guys they didn't have that good of a plan B in no. case it came crashing down. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. No, um, it, I mean they had computer modeling back then, as as Fredo mentioned. Um, they you know they did have simulations and computer modeling and you know wind tunnel tests and all that stuff, but. They'd never flown it. They're dealing with those unknowns and things like that. And bear in mind, computer modeling in the 70s probably wasn't as good as what they have now. Yeah, you got to take all that into effect that, you know, they were dealing with just all the unknowns. Yeah. I mean, I think Shuttle is still, to my knowledge, it's the only program where they just stuck two people on it and they launched it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say an obscene word here. You'd had to have like... Nerves of steel. Yes, you had to have nerves of steel to do that because I don't yeah. think I would have agreed to have done that. They, do you want to be on the first one? No, I'm good. I'll be on the second one <laughs> yeah, exactly. or the third one, but not the first one. I, I'd like somebody else to do the first one. Uh, if you ever get the chance, Emily, try and get up to New York City and visit the Intrepid Air and Space Museum. It's on the, the air carrier, and that's where they've got uh, a purpose-built hangar for, for Enterprise. And as you as you go in, it's got the names of of the four of them in big letters that that flew it, and it really does do a job of letting you know these guys are important and, and these missions are important, and and it's it's so clean compared to the the other three shuttles which obviously went to space. It still looks amazing. Yeah, that's the thing. I've seen pictures of it. I I, I need to see it in in the flesh, so to speak, because um. I've never seen it in the flesh, but I've seen pictures of it, and it looks pristine. It looks beautiful compared to Atlantis, and I've seen Discovery as well. You can tell they've done a little bit of flying. They've done some miles. (laughs) Yeah, they've had some miles put on them. They've done a little bit of time in space, so you can tell, you know, where. whereas, you know, Enterprise looks crystal clean. Yeah, I really consider Fredo the first shuttle commander. I don't think he would. Because I think in his mind, he would think, well, Young climbed aboard it and it had, you know, propellants and the solids and all that stuff. But I really consider Fredo the first because I think it was just as risky because 
I don't want to think about this because I, I, you know, I'm glad it went as smoothly as it did, but they had ejection seats. That kind of tells you everything. Yeah. They had a plan C just in case. <laughs> I like how he called it plan C. I thought that yeah. was funny, but it's kind of like gallows humor, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I also love how years on his knowledge of the technical details is still right there, isn't it? He's got it all right there, ready to go. He can tell you, talk you through all the systems, the maneuvers they had to do. You know, it just goes to show how much they did train. And when I asked him about whether he ever got nervous after things had gone wrong and getting back in, and he pointed out that not only did they do a lot of training, but they were also integral in designing these things, that they knew these systems inside out, and they still know these systems inside out 45 years later. I'm sure before Fredo did the you know the enterprise flights i mean i'm sure he trained probably he and gordo together probably trained you know hundreds and hundreds of hours i'm sure there's an actual record of it somewhere of how they how much they actually trained so i've watched all the approach and landing films and there is one of the first flight when the gpc goes out and there's film of inside the cockpit and you can see this big x going across the computer and i probably would have being somebody (laughs) who hasn't flown enterprise I probably would have wet myself at that moment. Like, oh, we're done. Yeah. You can tell, though, Fred is just flying the plane. You, you know, obviously, Gordo was working on safing the computer. Um, but you can tell Fredo's just he's it's not that he's not acknowledging it. It's just I think he was so focused on, OK, we're just going to land. We're going to stay in the air, not panic and land this thing. You know, and that's what he did. I think his book title really sums it up. Never panic early. That is an awesome title that just dropped last night. Um, Today, we're taping a little earlier. So today is uh, the 3rd of July. But um, that title, oh my God. Like that sounds like it should have like a soundtrack or something. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that was really wonderful. I'm glad we didn't bombard him with Apollo 13 questions. That's been covered loads. And yeah. uh, I, I, in the show notes, I'm going to put some links to, to other Apollo 13 based podcasts, yeah. which exist. Because if you really want to learn more about that, it's all been covered in so much detail. But yeah, I, you know, hearing him talk about the other things he has been part of in his life. That was a lot of fun for for me in particular, who's devoured Fred Hayes interviews in my time. And I can't wait for the book as well. And I'm assuming, Emily, that at some point you'll be covering the approach and land tests in your blog about the 70s era spaceflight or just NASA in the in the 70s. I, surely this is definitely going to come up. Absolutely. Uh, I tried writing one years ago, but it just wasn't hitting right. So I never published it. But um, yeah, I, I'd like to write. I definitely like to write something about it in the future just because it was just it just had to go right. Yeah. I don't want to think about this in these terms, but let's say, you know, it hadn't gone quite to plan. You know, I don't think there would have been a shuttle program. So really, yeah. people like Fredo, people like Fullerton, Engel, and Truly, they had a lot of pressure. They're four names that people within the space world need to respect a little bit more for the work they did on that project. Obviously, they've all done other things as well, but but that's the part that, you know, I think it's really important, as you said, and it's really amazing. So, yes. Great interview. I'm happy. I'm going to be buzzing for days. Yep. And uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's get on with the news. At the point of recording this, we've had two launches this week. The first on Monday, the 19th of July, the China Aerospace and Technology Corporation launched a Long March 2CE rocket, apparently carrying a Yagan 3010 satellite. 
and it's not confirmed exactly what that satellite is doing, so I won't speculate. Yeah, if I go outside and I see something shiny up, that's probably what it's doing. <laughs> but the other launch, we briefly spoke about it earlier, but on Tuesday, uh, July 20th, Blue Origin had their first crewed launch of their new Shepard rocket with a crew of four. As we mentioned in previous podcasts, two of the crew were Blue Origin and Amazon founder Jeff Bezos with his brother Mark. A new story, which we haven't spoken about yet, is about the first paying customer who was 18-year-old Dutch student Oliver Damon. Having always wanted to fly to space, his dad purchased him a ticket, although we don't know how much this was. In doing so, Oliver becomes the youngest person ever to fly in space, beating a nearly 60-year-old record of Russian cosmonaut Gierman Titov, who was 25 when he flew in the Soviet Union's Vostok 2 mission. Uh, we'll be talking about that mission in more detail in a few weeks. Yes, we will. <laughs> that'll, that'll be fun. Uh, this seat was supposed to be taken by the winner of the auction last month, but the still unnamed winner of that auction couldn't attend the launch. Uh, that's unusual. So Oliver got bumped up. As was discussed earlier and in previous podcasts, the final seat went to 82-year-old Wally Funk, who became the oldest person to fly in space after spending 60 years of her life fighting to do so. Although, as she pointed out in the post-flight press conference, she's only 45, really. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, I could watch her all day talk. She's amazing. If I, have you ever seen her talk? Yes, she's... She, uh, I think Francis French said she doesn't. They didn't need any propellant on board because she had all the energy they needed. <laughs> Absolutely, there was a great bit in the press conference when uh, they were talking about the fact there was a six-minute delay, and Wally was getting impatient, going, "Why can't we go?" <laughs> yep, she's like, "Okay, I waited sixty years. Now I don't want six more minutes." <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Now I have seen some people say this week that they felt that this flight was an unnecessary risk. And I think there might be some merits to that point for, for this and the Virgin Galactic flight and the upcoming SpaceX Inspiration 4 flight. Are there risks that really need to be taken? And if something does go wrong, will they set everything back? I don't know the answer to that. But one thing I do find interesting about this flight is that it's fully automated. And the crew are really just passengers and had just 14 hours of training. Which blows my mind. Yeah, whereas like, you know, for ISS missions and, you know, shuttle missions and I mean, if you go, if you want to go back, you know, Apollo missions, they were training for years. Yeah. We talked to Fredo a little bit this time and I've talked to other Apollo guys and they were literally training from the second they got there until when they flew and sometimes Fred Gibson, that was got eight years. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really have a comment about it other than it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like this is where space flight is going. Obviously, spaceflight's never completely safe, but if we're saying it's safe enough for these kind of flights, and essentially, training is just like a long version of what you get before you're a passenger on an airplane. Yeah. And when it's a fully automated flight, which only lasts 10 minutes, how much training do you actually need to do? Yeah, it's definitely um, unusual. I was just on a plane this week, and I was kind of thinking that on the plane, like, is space travel going to be sort of like this? You get on the plane, and they play the video for you, and... You know, they play the, you know, the, okay, if stuff, something bad happens, an oxygen mask will come down and, you know, and here's where the floaties are. Have a nice day. Yeah, you know? exactly. Is, is that what it's going to be like in 20 years, 30 years? Who knows? But it's exciting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, who knows? To me, it's that's exciting, you know, that we're at that point at, at the stage of, of space flight. 
because none of us were alive when this was happening for commercial flight. Absolutely not. Let's be real. Commercial early, not commercial flight, but early flight obviously was was pretty dangerous. They were they didn't know what they were doing. No. You know, I mean, even, you know, the Wright brothers had plane crashes and stuff like that. We tend to forget that, you know, they had failures, too. And I mean, if you look at somebody like Amelia Earhart, she died trying to break an aviation record or trying to set a record, you know, so I agree with you. It's kind of a brave new world out there. And I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm just nervous because, oh boy, I hate saying this. I remember Challenger and that just changed everything because when I was a kid, real, like, you know, five or six, I was like, man, I'm going to be flying on the space shuttle one day. Yeah. I honestly believe that. Like, I was like, man, one day I'm going to be up on the space shuttle, you know, because back in those days, you know, it was, oh, it's as safe as an airplane. You know, regular people are going to be going on it and stuff. I mean, that's what it was sold on. And then Challenger happened, and like I said, I was so young, I didn't know the risks of flying in space. And Challenger changed everything, and it made us realize, okay, maybe, you know, it's did the passenger on that one, did she know? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not trying to be depressing, but it's just something I kind of have in the back of my head. So. Mm. Yeah. I mean, at some point, something will go wrong. We still see things go wrong with, with planes, and it, I mean, cars today. And spaceflight won't be exempt from that. So we just have to wait and see what the implications of that will be when it does, unfortunately, eventually happen. But I would like to talk more about Wally Funk right now. 82 years old, and she led the way up the stairs to the top of the launch pad with no lift. They had no lift, which surprised me. Yeah. But those stairs were no problem for her. All I have to say is if I'm still around by that age, I hope I'm in as great of a shape greatest shape is uh wally funk whatever serum she's using give me it because she looks and she looks and sounds great and even though you know glenn i think glenn was 77 when he flew to space but to have somebody who's 82 go to space and handle it you know i don't know how much data they took from this flight in so far as you know how her body reacted to space because she was not up there very long but still i mean it sort of changes the game and okay now maybe we can do more studies of, you know, geriatric studies in space to see how the human body will react because that may be something we want to think about, you know, Absolutely. how younger and older people might react because most of the people who fly to space are people like around my age, you know? Yeah. And also I loved her honesty in the press conference afterwards. I'm not sure that the PR people at Blue Origin will be 100% happy with her though. <laughs> right? I mean, she was so, super excited and really happy and really grateful. But at the same time, she was like, I was hoping to see more of the Earth, but we weren't high enough. She also said that she didn't feel there was enough room inside for four of them to all do somersaults and enjoy the most of the zero-G experience and that she'd had that experience on other flights and had more space. So I'm pretty sure that they weren't best pleased with her for saying something like that because it's supposed to be able to fit six people and this time it only had four on. But anyway, I loved her honesty within that and uh, I wouldn't expect anything less from her. Yeah, if I had a shot to go to space, I would like to have a good view of the earth just because I'm like this kind of why I came up here, yeah. you know, but just a, yeah, I get it. I get it. I love her honesty. Yeah. Um, so there's obviously some wider significance in this flight as well. Uh, there's been a lot of talk today online about uh, more talk about billionaires on space and all that kind of stuff and the environmental impact and all those kind of things, environmental impact of uh, if there's going to be a lot more tourist flights going up with different rockets. And I think that's that's worthy of, of discussion and, and hopefully pe- people like our friends at Blue Shift Aerospace are going to help change that debate as well. But I do think it's worth talking about the 
other side of this that happened before and after this flight. Jeff Bezos has been quite the philanthropist. Uh, firstly, donating $200 million to the Smithsonian Institution, which is the largest single donation received since the founding gift in 1846 by James Smithson. I always wondered where Smithsonian got its name from, and now I know. Anyway, $70 million of that is money going towards renovating the National Air and Space Museum, and $130 million is supporting the creation of a new education centre at the Smithsonian Flagship Museum on the National Mall, which will be named the Bezos Learning Centre. We have mentioned that the uh, auction took place for the final seat on board this flight. Well, that raised $28 million for Blue Origins Foundation, which is called Club for the Future. And they also announced they selected 19 space-based charities to each receive a $1 million grant. Within the show notes, we'll be posting a link to the press release, which lists all of the charities and what they do. But there are a lot of names in there that we know and love and have spoken about in previous podcasts. The remaining money from the auction will be used to continue the work that Club for the Future has started. And if you want to know more, visit clubforfuture.org. And on top of that, and although this isn't necessarily space related, I still feel it's slightly relevant here. At the post-flight press conference, Bezos announced a new $100 million reward called the Courage and Civility Award, and then announced the first two recipients of this. Van Jones, uh, now I didn't know who who this is but I've now learnt he's an American news and political commentator, author and lawyer and a celebrity chef called Jose Andres. Oh, I probably got his name pronounced wrong, but he's done loads of charity work and, and providing meals for people uh, when, when things are going wrong. So both can spend that $100 million on whatever charities they choose, whether they be their own or other people's. Now, I'm aware that there are many people who hate the idea of billionaires going to space and even having private space companies. And yes, we've spoken about this before. But within that discussion, it's often forgotten about the importance and benefits of spaceflight and the power of inspiration that can come from these flights, especially when you include someone like Wally Funk or when you have a crew like the Inspiration 4 mission. And Bezos has decided to back this up by throwing money at space and education charities and other charities too. And I hear the argument, is it enough, bearing in mind how much money he has? Well, in my opinion, that's up to him at the end of the day. I would, of course, love to see him give a whole load more, but these are huge donations, and they will transform the lives of many and enable a whole generation of future scientists to begin to realise their potential. And can we even put a value on that when the world is going to be saved by the next generation of scientists. Now, I hope that the reason that Bezos has done this isn't just because he was aware that people would ultimately criticise him for being a billionaire with a rocket, but because he sees the importance of this. But I guess we'll never know that. We live in a world that allows people to earn as much money as they want and it gives them the freedom to do what they want with it. So in this case, I think he's chosen well. Yeah, I agree. Uh... I've kind of tried to avoid going on Twitter today because I'm just seeing a lot of stuff like, you know, criticizing him and uh, some really ugly things have been said. You know, and I don't want I don't want to repeat them. But um, my attitude is it's his money. He can use it as he sees fit. And, you know, there's a lot worse things billionaires can be doing. I mean, I don't you know want to mention any names, but we you know, we've had people who are big in the 
in the news cycle, you know, um, doing bad things, <laughs> bad, bad things, things with money, yeah. uh, illegal things. We'll just put it that way. I don't want to say any. This is a family show, so I don't really want to say anything further. But, you know, he's given it to a number of charities that not charities, nonprofits that uh, I am a huge fan of. He gave a million dollars to a uh, higher orbits. He gave a million dollars to the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. He gave a million dollars to the National Space Society, which is uh, also near and dear to my heart. I mean, Space Camp. Yeah, Space Camp. I mean, these are these are legitimate organizations. Obviously, when I saw that list, I, I I was in Space Fest. I was at Tucson, and I was like, man, space is really back this time. Yeah. Like, these are all sort of grassroots organizations which benefit space. You know, they're not net government organizations, and I think that's really, um, I think that's really special because truly, you know, it shows that that's kind of the wave of the future. I mean, not to diss NASA or what they're doing. I think what they're doing is incredible too. But you know, we've also sort of got civilian space programs as well. And I think once sort of the hype about, you know, oh, billionaires going to space. I think once everything dies down, we'll see that, okay, we can do actual science aboard some of these missions. You know, we can fly science payloads. And I think, you know, Blue Origin's got the, you know, they have the new Shepard, but they're going to have the new Glenn. And the new Armstrong as well, he mentioned today. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Musk is doing all sorts of things. You know, I think it's really too early to say, well, it's just for the billionaires and stuff like that. We don't know that. I mean, maybe in 20 years, somebody like me will get to go to space. I'm not a scientist, but, you know. But this definitely gives us hope, doesn't it, that that can happen? Yeah, maybe they'll maybe one day they'll allow a journalist to go up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. That would be awesome. I would, hey, I would take that, yeah. you know. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. I think a lot of the debate doesn't have nuance. A lot of people were, you know, you either get the, oh, well, if they paid their taxes, well, yeah, that would be great if they paid more more tax or more tax that they're supposed to pay. But they don't have to do that and not do the stuff they're also doing now. Like, there's no yeah. either or. And, and it's like, oh, well, NASA should be doing this. Well, there's nothing stopping NASA doing it as well. Like, there's no need. Yeah. Like, you don't have to have just NASA doing it and not have private companies. You can have both, and they can both be successful. Everything's so black or white these days. There's no nuance to anyone's yeah. anyone's debate about what's right and what's wrong and uh, often these things are gray they're not black or white so yeah that's that's frustrated me a little bit but today i've tried really hard to focus just on the fact that, that wally funk finally got her flight after 60 years of waiting for it and she smashed it and she she had all the energy that i wanted her to have and she's inspiring and uh as you, I think you tweeted, didn't you, saying that you know the, the the record holder for the oldest person in space is now held by a woman. Yes, and that's that's empowering. That's empowering for so many people, and that's important. That is important, regardless of what you think of it, all the other stuff. That's important. Yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, especially you know in her lifetime, in that woman's lifetime, it went from women are never going to fly in space. You know, I mean, that they were literally saying this in the early 60s, like, we don't want women in space ever. And it wasn't because of really had there was no reason for it. Yeah. I mean, if we if you really break it down, I mean, I, I've always tried to look for legitimate reasons that they wouldn't let women in space. There was really no reason, you know, really no reason for it. So in this woman's lifetime, it went from, OK, we can't have women in space to now we have now she's went gone to space, you know, so. Yeah, I, I think that's very significant, and that's something to be, you know, incredibly excited about. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. In other news, after weeks in the dark, NASA has managed to revive the Hubble Space Telescope after successfully switching to a backup computer on Friday, July 16th. And by Saturday, it was returned to operational status and was collecting data again. A fantastic news story, which we hope hasn't been lost with all the bigger headline stories over the last few weeks. Uh, While it may be 40-year-old technology, this outer space observatory is an icon. And after 31 years in space, it still has the ability to deliver and build on the huge amount of work it has already contributed to the understanding of the universe and our place within it. So as always, I'll post information and links to articles about all of these stories and videos where appropriate. And I'll also post some about SpaceX test firing its super heavy booster for Starship for the first time and about the Chinese Mars rover Zurong finding its parachute and back shell from its landing in May. Both are very cool stories. Now you can find your show notes in the podcast app by clicking on the episode and seeing them below. Or if that doesn't work or it's unclear, just visit our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, where the current episode is on the front page and there's also an archive where you can easily find all of our previous episode notes and videos. We forgot to mention earlier that the full unedited version of our Fred Hayes interview is up in video form on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space and things. Uh, please do consider joining us over there. It's a great way for you to submit questions to our guests. And also, you get some other goodies, too. Goodies are always good. Anyway, yes, please do consider joining us there. And also, a big thank you to those of you who have pressed the share button. We're getting very close to 15,000 downloads. And and that's mostly down to people being kind enough to share it. So uh, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Next week, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 15 moon landing. Yes, uh, we'll be joined by author and friend of the podcast, Francis French, to discuss that mission. Uh, We recorded it a few weeks back, and it's really wonderful. So we hope you enjoy that. But right now, don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.